Will you pray with me? Come, Holy One, overshadow our unwillingness. Redeem us by your love. Amen. My waking hours lately have been awash, as I suspect they have been for all of us, with harrowing images of cities under siege, families fleeing war zones, seeking a haven in neighboring nations, a hospital for children and mothers mercilessly bombed, citizens captivated by a terrorizing tyrant bent on domination at any price. Jesus's anguish gives voice to the agony of all who suffer because of human resistance to love's demands. God knows our sinful condition truly and weeps for the weight of our world. Jesus' lament also will not leave us alone because Jerusalem involves us all. With Herod and the forces of empire that stand behind him, With Pharisees and perplexed disciples, we too find ourselves revealed in the shadow of this moment, resistant to God's reconciling love. If we would find good news in Jesus' anguished cry on behalf of the people of every city in its striving, we must attend to the prophets who shaped his holy imagination There is no voice more helpful for attuning modern ears to the hope of the ancient prophets than scholar Walter Brueggemann. His substantive work in a book entitled Disruptive Grace, Reflections on God, Scripture, and the Church, lies behind my wrestling this morning with our opportunity for penitent hearts, confession, and turning back to the Lord as we hear our ears prick at Jesus' moving lamentation. Like the Hebrew prophets who precede him, Jesus prods us to hear the word of the Lord and to turn toward God's deliverance. The stakes are high here in Atlanta, just as they were in Jerusalem. Brueggemann begins his explication, saying, In the Bible there is only one holy city, and it is Jerusalem. But many holy cities are out there, and every city imagines it is holy. Brueggemann explains, every world-class city has priests to make it holy, its media experts to say it is holy, technology like CNN and finance like Nations Bank, and power like Delta and Coca-Cola and Home Depot to generate the juices of life, hospitals that do research, universities that serve business. Every city puts up the bright lights and the young come for jobs, and excitement, and freedom. This is Brueggemann's words, and they convict me too. Every city is holy, the place where dwell the secrets of control, and security, and well-being, and each in its distinctive way relives the story of Jerusalem as holy city, usually, usually learning only late, if at all, the hard lessons of Jerusalem. The pitfall, if we trust Brueggemann, is Jerusalem's self-congratulatory illusion, a plague, a danger that plagues every would-be holy city. 
I wonder if this is what Bishop Mary Gray Reeves was alluding to in her sermon last week when she was reflecting on our life in the wider church and the parts of our tradition that she loves, that we love, that she believes will in fact need to die in order for God's risen life to be renewed among us. Our recent popcorn theology discussion of the Disney film Encanto led those of us who were in that room to explore fear and grief that gets stirred in us every time we see such signs of distress when our families and communities face seasons of transformation, especially in those times when we find ourselves cracked wide open by fear about the future and generational trauma. What might it look like for us to be gathered together under God's wing, even in our uncertainty about what lies ahead? Disaster and failure featured in Jerusalem's story of transformation. Though most of its prophets were not violently killed like Jesus, the prophets did predict that holy city's experience of cultural death. Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BCE, and that moment defined the city's understanding of itself in relation to God and God's covenantal promises as inhabitants who remained in the land and those who were carried off into captivity in a faraway place struggled to digest that traumatic event. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were influential prophets in the Hebrew Bible who spoke healing truth into that destruction. Their discernment aided the people as they faced their suffering. First, within Brueggemann's treatment of these major prophets, is Isaiah, a familiar and respected urban advisor to those with power and influence. Isaiah cherishes tradition and longs to see God's promises to Abraham and David and indeed to all of Israel reflected in Jerusalem's thriving. In that holy city, God will dwell forever, protecting and providing for the people. Or so the theology went. Only the bustling economy Isaiah first sees as a sign of divine blessing becomes a greed machine, generating communal woe. Private wealth of the few is built by unbridled pursuit of economic gain. Some have more than they need, while the vulnerable are left behind in the dust. Isaiah's heart breaks over the inevitability of urban self-destruction. Brueggemann explains that a city built on unbearable economic inequality could only ever end in failure and alienation. Brueggemann's second witness is Jeremiah, who hails from the village of Anatoth in Judah, far outside the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah is formed by a community of protest, deeply opposed to the Jerusalem establishment for centuries. Extensive study of the Torah among them reveals God's promise is neither unconditional nor inevitable. God is faithful toward those who keep the covenant, Jeremiah insists. Entrusted with the divine mission on Mount Sinai, as we remember that Moses was, the, the people are living into God's dream of dignity and justice for all in those laws that organize public life for the people of Israel. The year of release was one such foundational commitment on which God's covenant to Israel hinged. No matter how poor or how indebted a working person might be, paying back debts in that divine economy 
was a time-delimited project. Each one was to be forgiven their remaining debts in the seventh year of working to pay them back. Brueggemann sees this divine mandate of the Torah undergirding Jeremiah's unshakable conviction that the economy must serve the community, not the other way around. The God who liberates Israel from enslavement in Egypt will not abide any permanent underclass among his people. God's priorities for economic justice extend to the most vulnerable and exposed in that patriarchal economy, the widows, orphans, and aliens. To disregard their dignity jeopardizes God's covenant and the land itself. Brueggemann frames Jeremiah's recapitulation of that divine program plainly. He says, you cannot discard some and have a viable city. Policies that attend to inequities are just as crucial now as then. Commitments that we manifest in the laws, the willing consent of the governed, enact our civic policies in things like taxes, rents, mortgages, loans, collateral, and interest rates. Brueggemann keeps us focused on these prophetic priorities because it's not true that they're always innately good. Yes, some laws drive development and spur innovation, but they sometimes also harbor strategies employed by the savvy to siphon off the gifts of the city in ways that destroy weaker members of the human community. Jeremiah frames the divine question that arises repeatedly in the face of this anti-neighborliness. God says, shall I not punish? Question that haunts us with equal force, as it must have the people of Jerusalem to whom Jeremiah spoke. Lesser-known voices, a lesser-known among the prophets is the third voice Brueggemann lifts up. Ezekiel and his fellow Aaronide priests stake everything on the transformative power of worship, haunted as they are by the traumatic destruction that they witness in the failure of Jerusalem and the destruction and desecration of its temple. Sacred space for wonder and awe in a hectic world that is so frequently chaotic and out of control indeed is a precious blessing worth protecting. Because worship at its best ushers us all into terrain where our souls, minds, and bodies bow down in loving reverence before the Holy One who creates the cosmos in power, beauty, and grace. Such a sacred center sharpens our awareness of this one who is holy and mighty and holy other, sovereign over all creation. Ezekiel's visions bore witness to shattering abominations that he links to the departure of the presence of God from Jerusalem, presence being how God would protect and preserve the people. Brueggemann clarifies that Ezekiel's abomination is actually a bit more akin to our word pornography, which Brueggemann defines as the cheapening of life and trivialization of God into pettiness and entertainment. This is no mere chafing over stylistic differences in the liturgy. Ezekiel's witness is naming the assaults on the dignity of the divine image that Brueggemann finds also loathsome whenever human beings are brutalized and commoditized for the sake of big bucks. 
in mindless exploitation, abuse, and violence that Brueggemann points out in things like unbridled militarism and uncontrolled market economics all around the globe. It's understandable if when we come into this beautiful space that we want to leave those kinds of sacrileges behind when we come to be nourished by God's word and sacraments. But war zones halfway around the world continue to transfix us with worry. The Holy Spirit groans within us, lamenting the woes of the world with sighs too deep for words. And even closer to home, people are dehumanized. The truth is, this is the very haven, as we heard named in our collect for the day, where we can bring our worries and lament, and they can be surrendered into the healing heart of love as our penitent hearts bow down before the Lord. Like the Hebrew prophets that are always pointing us back to God's mercy and grace, the Holy One alone is faithful. God's forgiveness is always here for us. And as Bell Hooks reminds us, like all the prophets before her, awakening to love can only happen as we let go of our obsession with power and domination. This morning, may we find ourselves drawn together under the shelter of God's wings, healed, transformed by love's perfect power to enfold us one and all into the brood of God. Amen.